0: Friends, please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning we'll be reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. If you have one of the black church Bibles, that's page 930. Again, we'll be reading from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is what Holy Scripture says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you brothers as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning,
1: Grace Fellowship Church. I want to invite you to take your Bible again and open up to uh, Second Thessalonians that Pastor Dwight read for us. This is our second week now in this new series, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 and 4. Uh, I promise you this is not the pace that we're going to be going at when it comes to uh, studying this, uh, this letter. We're going to be looking at larger chunks as we move on from here. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the next two verses, verses 3 and 4. Let's pray. Father, it is our great desire that you would be glorified in this time. There is, we believe, something supernatural that happens in the preaching of your word, that, Lord, even though it is man that speaks, Lord, it is you that is ultimately speaking through weak and feeble men. So, Father, I pray that you would speak. I pray, Lord, that we would hear from you. If there is anything in this sermon that is not of you, Lord, may those words fall on deaf ears. But if it's from you, Lord, help us to hear it Help us to understand it, and help us to respond in faith and in love and in obedience. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, when talking about how great a particular church is, it's pretty interesting to hear what people tend to point out. You'll hear people talk about how amazing their facility is, or you might hear people talk about how talented their musicians are. Or maybe the top-notch programs that they offer to the people, how accommodating the church is for everyone. Maybe it's about how dynamic their speaker is. Maybe it's the multiple churches they have helped plant. And here's a common one. Maybe it's the size of their congregation. Let's be honest. Those are things that we can focus on too as a standard of what makes a church great. And don't get me wrong, those things aren't inherently evil. If we have those things, then we can be very thankful to the Lord God for blessing us. But don't you find it interesting that the Apostle Paul never once boasts about any of these things? Which then begs another question, what kind of church would make the Apostle Paul proud and filled with gratitude? Gratitude. In our passage today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we're going to see how Paul could not help but boast about the Thessalonians and give thanks to God for what he was doing in their church. And we're going to see here that he doesn't talk about how amazing their facility is. We don't even know if they have a facility. Remember, these are persecuted Christians who are living under severe affliction. Chances are they're, they're probably meeting in secret in people's homes, Nor does he brag about the eloquence of their pastor. We have no idea if they even have a pastor yet. Nor do they boast about the size of their congregation. We have no real idea how big or small this church is. No, no, no. You see, what what Paul acknowledges here is something significantly different, something significantly deeper And and the evidences of grace that he sees in this church drives him to the Lord with a heart that is filled with gratitude. And so in light of that truth, the big question that I want us to consider this morning is this, friends, if the Apostle Paul was here today in Grace Fellowship Church or in Park Royal Bible Church, those of you who are joining us online, would he feel the same compulsion to thank God for what he sees happening in this church? Would the Apostle Paul be quick to boast about us to the other churches and commend us for our godliness? Well, in order to answer those questions, we need to understand what kind of church would make the Apostle Paul proud and compel him to praise the Lord. So here's point number one, live a life worthy of gratitude Look with me at verse 3. Paul begins and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Paul tends to do this a lot in the majority of his letters. After his initial, thanksgi- after his initial greeting, he moves into a word of thanksgiving. And notice here that his thanksgiving isn't towards the people It's not towards the church, but it's toward God. And that's just so important for us to remember because if there is anything good that is happening in the church, if there is anything that is worthy of praise and gratitude, it is all by the grace of God and the grace of God alone. But there is something unique and interesting about what he says in this specific letter regarding gratitude. If you look carefully at our text, and you compare it to some of his other epistles where he shares a word of thanksgiving, this is the only time where he talks about the obligation to give thanks to the Lord. Look look at verse 3. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. He he doesn't say we should or we could, but he says we ought, and, and that word communicates a sense of moral obligation and then he, re- he basically repeats himself again when he says at the end, as is right. So you see, this isn't just a good thing to do, nor is it the cool thing to do. It is the right thing to do. There is no choice in the matter here. If there is evidence of God's grace and God's blessing in another Christian's life or in another church's life, it is our duty to thank the Lord for his grace. Why? Because when we don't, it robs the Lord of the glory that he deserves. And brothers and sisters, we must always remember that we were created to glorify our God. So it's not about making others feel good about themselves. It's about honoring God and glorifying his name. And Paul himself felt this joyful compulsion to thank the Lord for the Thessalonians for two specific reasons, and these two reasons show us how to live a life worthy of gratitude. So here's the first way. In order to live a life worthy of gratitude, you must grow in faith. Look again at verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because, here's the first reason, your faith is growing abundantly. Their their faith in Christ is growing. Their their trust in Jesus is deepening. And and notice how Paul talks about the growth of their faith. He's not simply saying it's growing, but he says it's growing abundantly. The, The original word that's used here communicates a sense of growth that, that that's that's going on in an astounding way. It is an uncommon, superabounding, hypergrowth. Now, there's an important implication in these words that we need to make sure we don't miss. The fact that their faith was growing tremendously tells us that faith is not something that is static or stagnant. Okay. On the contrary, faith is something that is living and active and dynamic. There are differing degrees of faith. Your faith can be small, but your faith can be great. Now, let me just be clear here. What ultimately matters is not the size of your faith, but the object of your faith. Even if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed in the world, as long as that little faith is in Jesus Christ, that is enough to save you from your sins. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. That is good news to those of you who are here and you may not know Christ. Friends, you don't need a perfect faith in order to be saved. You don't even need a great faith in order to be saved. All you need to do is take that little faith and put it in Jesus Christ. Believe that he is who he says he is and believe that he died on the cross and rose again because, listen, it is not ultimately the size of your faith that saves you. It is Jesus who saves you and he is able to save to the uttermost. So that's the most important thing that we need to understand about the nature of faith. But all that being said, it's also important that we don't become complacent with keeping a small faith. In John Bunyan's classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress, there's a a short story there about a man named Little Faith, and his name tells you a lot about what this character is like. In the book, he's known as a good man, a man from this city called Sincere, and he goes on this sacred pilgrimage to get to the celestial city, which is a picture of glory. But he's a man whose faith is small. And as he's going on his way, he ends up falling asleep on this path where he ends up getting beaten up by a trio of thieves and then robbed by them and then after that event, he struggles immensely on his journey. He is, he's fearful, he's always complaining, and he goes on the rest of his journey begging people for help. If you know anything about Pilgrim's Progress, you know that it's all written in allegory, meaning the author is writing a fictional story that is filled with symbolism and meaning, meaning. And the story of little faith is important for our consideration today because it reminds us of the struggles and the hardships of walking through life with a weak and feeble faith. Apart from that one verse about the mustard seed, I want you to just think about how Jesus so often talks about people who have little faith. It's never in a positive way. It's always in a negative way. Let me give you a few examples here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 and 30. This is uh, right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, in this passage here, we see that there is a correlation between little faith and anxiety. Matthew chapter 8, verse 25, this is where Jesus calms the storm. It says, and they, that's the disciples, went and woke him up saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Here in this passage, we see that there is a correlation between little faith and fear. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31, this is where Jesus walks on water. Verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, that's Peter, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Little faith produced doubt. Let me give you one more. Matthew chapter 16, verse 7. This is where the disciples forgot to bring bread. Verse 7, and they, the disciples, began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And keep in mind that this comes shortly after Jesus feeds the 4,000. Miraculously. Little faith. Little faith produced worry. Those who have little faith in Jesus Christ will make it to glory, but the journey will be filled with anxiety, fear, doubt, and worry. And so that's why Jesus calls his disciples to a life of greater faith for the sake of their own good. Yes, your faith may be as small as a seed in order to be saved, but that small seed of faith is meant to grow into a great and vibrant and beautiful tree of faith. You know, I have little children who are all growing up, seven years old, four years old, and one who's about to turn two. And there are a lot of factors that go into making sure that a child grows well. One of the most important things that I have to do as a parent is make sure that they are eating well. Because if they don't eat, they don't grow. And if they don't eat the right things, they're going to become sick and unhealthy. And in the same way, you need to feed your faith. If faith is a living thing, you need to feed it in order for it to grow. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but let me just give you two very practical ways that you can be feeding your faith. Here's the first one. You need to be in the Word of God. You need to be in the Word of God. Your faith will not grow apart from a steady diet of God's Word. Think about what it says in Psalm 1. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, what is he doing? He meditates day and night. So so here's a picture of a man who is daily in the word of God, absorbing it, intaking it, meditating on it. And then listen to how the psalmist describes this man in verse 3. He says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its seasons. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The one who drinks constantly from the flowing stream of God's word is a super healthy tree that is firmly fixed and flourishing in the faith. You know, if you feel stuck and stagnant in your faith, then the very first thing that you ought to do is examine whether or not you are having a regular intake of God's word in your life. As a body suffers without the regular intake of food, the soul will suffer without the regular intake of the word. If you're here today and you're saying that your life is just so busy that you can't find time to be in God's Word, then something in your life must change. It must change. It has to change for the sake of your soul. Something must change. If you're in here today and you're struggling to be in God's Word, then let me just encourage you in a couple of ways. Number one, plan to read your Bible. And and I don't mean simply, oh, I'm going to read my Bible someday. I mean actually plan something. Open up your calendar, pull out your phone, make it a, a reminder or alarm, set a time to read the Bible. In Carson's book on prayer, one of the things he says is people don't pray because they don't plan on praying. And I think the same is true when it comes to our Bible reading. People don't read the Bible because we never schedule a time to read our Bible. Plan to read your Bible. Maybe, secondly, talk to another believer who is doing well in their devotion. Maybe go so far as to join another believer who is doing well in their devotion. Sometimes we just need someone else to spot us for a little while as we're going through that initial period of trying to get up on our own feet. Sometimes we need to ride on the back of someone's godliness and faithfulness until we can start running on our own pace. And this brings us really to the second big application because we realize that this Christian life is not something that we can do in isolation, which means if you want to grow in your faith, then you need to be in fellowship with other believers. The fellowship of believers is a precious means of God's grace for his people to grow in their faith. Listen to what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 24. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I know I need to chill out with all the Charles Spurgeon stories, but I'm gonna share one more today because it's such a good one. And it's one that I've shared often. It's one that I've shared with many of you um, but there are a lot of new people here, and it's also a good reminder of what we need to keep in mind. Spurgeon talks about a time in his ministry where he, was once vid- where he once had a man who stopped attending his church for a little while. And that man told Spurgeon that he believed himself to be a Christian, but he thought it wasn't essential to be a part of a church. He thought that he could figure this out all by himself. And then just like last week, we heard on the story, right, there was a a knock on the door. Guess who it was? It was Spurgeon. (laughs) And Spurgeon didn't say a word. He walked into this man's house, and he went to the fireplace, and he grabbed the tongs from the fireplace, and he pulled a single piece of coal, and he set it aside in the corner of the fireplace. And they just watched this single coal. And do you know what happened to that coal? This coal that was glowing bright red and burning strong over time started to cool off until it eventually burnt out. And Spurgeon was trying to teach this man an important lesson with this demonstration. He wanted this man to understand that if he removes himself from the body of believers, the same thing that happened to the coal is going to happen to his faith. But what happens when you throw the coal back into the fire? The fire burns, the coal burns, and the fire is stronger and bigger because of it. If you want to grow in your faith, then you need to be with other believers. A Christian does not grow in isolation. You need brothers and sisters who are going to be praying for you, who are going to be investing in your life, who are going to be carrying your burdens, who are going to be serving you and loving you and encouraging you and stirring you to love and good works. And listen, they need you to be doing the same thing for them. One of the things that I always try to teach in our membership class, it's a little phrase that comes from a theologian by the name of Ed Welch. He says, you are needy, and we understand that. We're needy, but you're also needed." You're needed in the church. It's not just about what you can get from others in the church, but it's about what you can give to others. Brothers and sisters, we need you in the church. We need your presence. We need your commitment. We need you to, to, for us to have an, a place to serve, but also we need you to be serving us and one another. You know, this seems like a good moment to simply encourage you, friends, especially in this season where we're emerging from COVID, take advantage of all the fellowship opportunities that we have this summer. We've been throwing it out there in the, at, the end, at the end of the bulletin for, for weeks now because we want to put it right in front of you. These are precious times for us to be together as the body of believers. So put those dates in your calendar. Prioritize these times to be together. And as Pastor Paul always says, friends, be all in. Be all in. Be in fellowship. Be in the word and grow in your faith because that is how you live a life that is worthy of gratitude. Here's the second way to live a life worthy of gratitude it's to increase in love. Look again at verse 3. Paul carries on and he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. That's number one. And secondly, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. The way Paul constructs this phrase is interesting. I've read through this over and over and over again for the past few weeks, and and it kind of just feels like Paul can be saying what he's saying in a more simple fashion, Why not just simply say something like, your love for one another is increasing? It's it's sweet, it's simple, it's proper English. But instead, he says, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It's it's, it's a bit of an awkward English. It's kind of wordy and a little bit clunky. But look, Paul chooses his words very carefully here, because what he is doing is he is emphasizing the reality that every single member of the church was increasing in their love for every other member of the church. There, was, there wasn't just a small percentage of people who were increasing in their love, nor was there just a small percentage of people who were the recipients of this increase in love. Everyone was loving everyone in this church. Everyone was actively growing in their love. Everyone was making sacrifices and caring for others, which is the very definition of love. No one was being left out. No one was being marginalized. No one was being sidelined. Now, if you consider the Thessalonians' context and their current affliction, there is something so deeply sweet and moving about these words. Although they experienced severe hatred from the people on the outside, they experienced abundant love from the members on the inside. They didn't treat one another in the same way that they were being treated by the people outside of the church. Jesus said that this would be the mark of his true disciples. John chapter 13, verse 35 By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. You see, they weren't influenced by the hatred of the world. Far greater than that, they were influenced by the love of God in Christ Jesus. There are a lot of things that I could say by way of application on how to increase in love. We could talk a lot about what you can do for others, how you can act towards others, the the different ways that you can be serving, the different ways that you could be making sacrifices. But I'm just going to give you one encouragement at this time. It's simple. It's obvious. But it's so significant, and it's something that we need to fiercely commit ourselves to on a very private and and personal level, also on a corporate level, when it comes to growing in our love for one another. And it's this. We need to prioritize praying for one another that we would increase in love. And, and there's a specific reason why I'm pointing this out out of everything else that I could be talking about. I want, I want to show you something really cool here. Turn with me a, a few pages back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Here in this first letter, Paul offers a prayer for the Thessalonians, and it's a very specific prayer. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. He prays, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you more and more. That's his prayer. He wants the Thessalonians to grow in their love for one another more and more. And, 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 and it hasn't been a long time um, apart since his first letter and his second letter, but by the time he gets to a second letter, he thanks God for the love that was increasing in the Thessalonian church. Do you know what that means? It means God answered Paul's prayer in his first letter. God answered that specific prayer. And as Paul sees the evidence of grace of their growing in love, in his second letter, he writes about giving thanks to God. So it's, it's simple, but I think it's profound that as you put these two letters together, here is proof, brothers and sisters, that the Lord answers the prayers of his people to increase and abound in love for one another. Friends, this should inspire all of us to pray for greater love in our church. And not simply to pray for that regularly, but to pray for that with great confidence and to pray for that with great expectation Why wouldn't God answer this prayer? We know that this is the will of God for our lives, that we would grow in our love for one another. And if we pray these things, pray about this regularly, I believe he will answer our prayers and that we will grow in our love for one another. So start with God before you start with one another. Start with God before you, you, you think about how the church itself can grow in their love on a very practical, horizontal level. Bring this petition with faith to God and let's all be praying every single week, every single Wednesday night as we come together, let's pray that we as a church would grow in our love for one another and watch how the Lord answers that prayer. That is how we live a life worthy of gratitude. Here's point number two, live a life worthy of boasting. When speaking to God about the church, he gives thanks. But when speaking to people about the church, he starts basically bragging. Verse four, therefore, come back with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter one, verse four, says therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring now i think we can flinch a little bit when we hear these words about boasting about other things It it doesn't sound right. Boasting just doesn't sound right to our Christian ears. And, And yes, we need to be careful because there is a kind of prideful boasting about self that exalts and honors self. But we need to understand that there is a kind of humble boasting about others that exalts and honors God. So we need to realize that not every kind of boasting is wrong. Nowhere in the Bible does Paul, Paul Paul say never boast, period. Rather, he gives us this rich theology of boasting rightly in such a way that honors God. We are to boast in the cross of Christ, Galatians 6:14. We are to boast in knowing and understanding God, Jeremiah 9:24. We are to boast in the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 31. And as we see here, we're not only supposed to boast about God, but about the work God is doing in the lives of his people. Boasting about someone's faith can be a danger to their soul. Maybe that's why we prefer silence. Maybe that's why we prefer just keeping our encouragements to ourselves. And it's true, there are, there are dangers here, especially if the individual can become easily puffed up and conceited. It could be a kind of flattery that fuels the growth of pride. But if done rightly and if done well, boasting can be used for great good. For those of you who have been in our, in our small groups, those member groups, I, th- I think you know what, what I'm talking about here. When, when, when the group identifies evidences of grace in your life, yes, pride may swell up in your heart and you have to be quick, quick to crush it, But what else happens in your heart? Is it not deeply encouraging and affirming to your faith? Not only that, there are other things that happen. It inspires others in the group to follow your godly example. And most importantly, it honors God who gives good gifts to his people. Boasting done rightly has a powerful effect. And for all of these reasons encouraging the Thessalonians, strengthening the other churches, glorifying God. Paul and his fellow missionaries are boasting about the Thessalonians and all the other churches that they're connected to. So here is what they're boasting about. And here is how we live a life worthy of boasting. We need to persevere in suffering. verse 4, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for, here's the reason, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. You see, despite all the difficulties that this church was experiencing, they were clinging to Christ. They were holding on to Jesus. They were still believing in him and growing in their faith. In Paul's first letter, he talks about their steadfastness. He uses the same word. It's, it's basically what I'm talking about when I'm talking about perseverance. And in the first letter, he ties their steadfastness to their hope in Jesus Christ. So, so listen here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul is thanking God, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and listen to this, and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's steadfastness in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So their their hope wasn't bound up in their riches. Their hope wasn't bound up in their strength, their intellect, their skills, their number, or their sense of being in control of the situation. Their hope was solely bound up in Jesus Christ and all that he is, that he is the one who died for their sins, that he is the one who rose again from the grave, that he is the one who is seated at the right hand of God, and that great, great promise that he will one day return to take all of his people home to glory. Friends, there is no persevering without hope. Our hope in Jesus is what fuels our perseverance. And so if you want to persevere in suffering, That you need to focus your attention more on the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. You do this by spending time with Jesus, by being in the Word, meditating, praying, and obeying His commandments. Take hold of His promises and keep them near and dear to your heart. I mean, just think about it. What are some of the most hope-giving passages for you in the Bible? I would encourage you to take every single one of them and commit them to memory so that you can call them to mind when the going gets tough. Be patient and carry on with this grand vision that your afflictions and your troubles are light and momentary in this life and they are preparing for you the weight of glory that is coming when Christ returns. These Thessalonians were steadfast and faithful, not in just the relatively easy struggles in life, but in the hardest ones as well, and in everything else in between, right? For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Persecutions are specifically talking about being accosted and attacked for your faith, But Paul also includes the words afflictions, which which is much broader in its definition, and it includes all kinds of hardships. So it's clear here that the Thessalonians were persevering in all kinds of trials and in every season of suffering. And because of this, the Apostle Paul was so proud of them. And the Apostle Paul was quick to boast about this church's steadfastness and faith and all the other churches that he was connected to. So friends, if we're going to give people something to boast about when it comes to our church, then let it be about our perseverance in faith despite affliction, despite hardships, despite trials, and despite tribulations. I began this sermon today with a hypothetical question. I asked you, if the Apostle Paul was here today, would he feel the same joyful compulsion to thank God for what he sees happening in this church? Would he be quick to boast about our church to the other churches around the world commending us for our godliness? And I would say, with all my heart, that the answer is yes. No, we're not going through the same kinds of persecution that the Thessalonians experienced but but I think it's okay to say that we've had our fair share of afflictions in this season, right? When I was writing the sermon, I was trying to re- recall and remember all the crazy details that we went through the, these past two and a half years. And, and it's hard to remember everything because so much has happened. I tell people these last two and a half years, just, it, it feels like a blur. It's just so chaotic and complicated. In-person services were shut down. I mean, we were filming services on my iPhone, People were separated, isolated, and disconnected. We saw horrific events take place around the world from police shootings in the states to a war emerging on the other side of the world. People who were so near and dear to us passed suddenly. We've had miscarriages and sicknesses. We've had beloved members move on for different reasons to different places. We have experienced economical challenges like we have never experienced before. And on top of all of that, there are all the trials that many of you are facing in your own personal lives that other people don't even know about. That's what comes to mind when I think about the last two and a half years. But do you know what else I remember? I saw this church adapt and commit to every single thing that we were doing despite the inconvenience, despite the awkwardness, 17 10-person services, people thought that was weird. You endured multiple 10-person services. You endured physical distancing with masks. You endured super hot outdoor services with wasps flying all over your head. You endured outdoor services when it started to rain and pour. In the last two and a half years, despite all that has happened, I saw you fight discouragement and fight hard for joy. I saw you pray for your government and pray for one another. I saw you repent of your sins and strive hard to live a holy and righteous life. I saw so many of you go above and beyond to care for those who are in trouble. In this last year, I saw over 160 meals go out to families who had babies or for those who were struggling, hospitalized, sick, and hurt. And I saw again and again. I have so many stories in the last two and a half years of conversations with so many of you saying, when Pastor Paul preached this, the, the Lord just crushed my heart. And, and, and he changed my life in that very moment. And so I just want to say, Grace Fellowship Church, I, I love you. And I'm so thankful to God for you. And I am so proud of this church. Tomorrow, Lord willing, I'm going to be flying to the States to see my in-laws for a little vacation. My family's already there. And Lord willing, I'm going to be attending my father-in-law's church that he, helps, uh, that, he, that he pastors there in Minnesota. And oftentimes when I go there, people, well, actually every single time I go there, people ask me, how is Grace Fellowship Church doing? And you can bet that I'm going to be boasting about this church. I'm going to tell them about your growing faith I'm going to tell them all about your increasing love and I'm going to tell them all about your perseverance and hope despite suffering. And may you be encouraged. May Waterbrook Christian Church in Minnesota be inspired and may God be glorified. And I don't want to forget about you, Park Royal Bible Church. And I want you to know something very important, that we here at Grace Fellowship Church pray for you every single day week as i know you do for us as well and and we're well aware of the hardships that you're experiencing having gone through this season for so long without a pastor but i want you to know that every single time that i've personally gone there on a thursday to be with you i've walked away every single time so deeply encouraged by your faith i've seen you practice patience a joyful patience while you wait on the lord and I've seen you go above and beyond and pray for one another every single week and love one another the best way that you can. PRBC, I thank God for your growing faith, for your increasing love, and your perseverance and hope. And my final word to all of us, Park Royal Bible Church and Grace Fellowship Church and everyone here, is simply this. Continue by the grace of God to live a god honoring life. May the Lord help all of us to do so. Amen.